You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. First Timothy chapter 4, <clears throat> the full confession this morning. Um, had a really, really bad night last night. I did a lot of grass mowing yesterday, as probably y'all did too. And about 4 a.m. this morning, my eyes were swelling shut. My left eye was completely swollen shut. So I got up at 4 a.m. and took a Benadryl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, buddy. So I'm feeling it this morning. So my eyes are a little glassy. Trust me, it's just the Benadryl. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I'm talking about false teaching this morning, so hopefully <laughs> hopefully, I can stay back from that precipice completely. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Also, my voice may crack as though I'm about 11 or 12-year-old, you know, going through puberty. If just get, All I'm asking is to extend some grace this morning, and we'll, we'll get through this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'll read through these, these verses this morning. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everyone, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected and is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy, and without it we would be a people without any hope at all. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that without the resurrection, the church, our faith, repentance, heaven, everything is just false. It's a waste of time. It is a vanity. But Father, we know that Jesus resurrected. We know that He's sitting at Your right hand. We know that He intercedes for us this morning, and we have hope, hope in a living God. Not a dead one, but a living one. And Father, that changes everything. But Father, there are those in our world, in our communities, that are intentionally misleading. Their consciences are seared. They are lying. And many are following. Many are falling prey to the deception. And Father, just as Paul and other writers of the New Testament have told us that this time in which we live, we will face false teachers. So Father, help us to know the difference. Help us to be grounded in Your Word. And Father, help us to recognize that there is a system that is organized that flows from the place of darkness 
that seeks to destroy, devour, mislead, and deceive. Father, we thank You for Your Word that is true and perfect in every way. We stand upon it this morning, not the opinions of man, but upon the sure truth of Your Word, breathed out, given to us. It has authority. It has power. So, Father, my prayer is, is that we would yield to the power of the Holy Spirit and to Your Word this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to introduce you to three individuals this morning. What I want to do is I want to share with you a little bit about what these three people did uh, within the Christian faith and share a little bit about their background. The first guy I want to introduce you to this morning is a guy you may probably have never heard of. Maybe you have. His name is Paul C. Maxwell. He has a Ph.D. in theology. He spent many years studying God's Word and studying church history and and received a Ph.D., which is a lot of work. Uh, this is something that he wrote in November 1st, on November 1st, 2016. It was in an article that he did called, Christ Did Not Die for a 5013C. This is what he says, quote, God's mercies are for you because you are made in His image, and because God the Father loved you and sent God the Son to become a fully human forever, so that you could know what it is like to be loved as a perfect son, even though you are imperfect. This was accomplished for you and is freely offered to you by God, the Spirit. This is of first importance, which means that every other religious reality is less important, end quote. That's what he wrote in 2016, November 1st. But this is what he wrote on April 9th, 2021 on his Instagram. Paul C. Maxwell wrote this, quote, He said, what I really miss is connection with people. What I've discovered is that I'm ready to connect again and that I'm kind of ready to not be angry anymore. I love you guys. I love all the friendships and support that I've built here. And I think it's important to say that I'm not, that I'm just not a Christian anymore. And he says, and that feels really good, and I'm really happy. Josh Harris, another guy that you might be familiar with, maybe a little more familiar with, especially if you were involved in any kind of youth ministry in the late 90s, early 2000s. He, he wrote a book. He wrote several, but he wrote a book. Uh, the name of the book is Why I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And I think every student ministry across the country was using that book at some point to help instruct their teenagers about what it means to date and, and the, the traps therein. And th this is what he wrote in another book that he, that he published called Why the Church Matters. Quote, the church community is where we learn to love God and others, where we are strengthened and transformed by the truth from the Word where we are taught to pray, to worship, and to serve, where we can be most certain that we are investing our time and abilities for eternity, where we can grow in our roles as friends, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. The church is Earth's single best place, God's especially designed place, to start over, to grow, and to change for the glory of God, end quote. But in 2019, this is what Josh Harris wrote on his Instagram. He says, quote, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Another guy by the name of John Steingard, he, again, back in the early 2000s, uh, there was a, a Christian band called Hawk Nelson. He was the lead singer of that band. Uh, and later in 2015, they wrote a song, and it was played quite a bit on the radio, called Diamonds. And the whole premise of the song was how that God can take dust and through His grace and sovereign power, turned dust into diamonds. And this is a quote right from that song. 
that John Steingard partially wrote. He was a co-writer on this and then sung it as part of the band Hawk Nelson. This is a quote from the song, Oh, the joy of the Lord, it will be my strength. When the pressure is on, he's making diamonds out of dust, making diamonds out of us. But in 2020, this is what John Steingard posted on all of his social media. He says, quote, after growing up in a Christian home, being a pastor's kid, playing and singing in a Christian band, and having the word Christian in front of most of the things in my life, I am now finding that I no longer believe in God. Three different people, three different influences on Christianity, and all three of them now say that they are atheists. Now, how do we reconcile that? I want to say that I'm glad that you're here, and I want to say that I'm glad that those that are online are here watching this morning. I know all across the country and even across the world, but we have something in front of us this morning we got to wrestle with. Because no doubt, these, these three individuals here that seem kind of removed from us, but if we move a little closer to home, more than likely you know of someone who made a profession of faith, started out with great passion and great zeal, followed that with baptism, was, was very much plugged into the local church only to fall away and haven't been seen or heard from again. And even, not seen or heard from, but even to the point where they are now antagonistic against the faith. They're even speaking against the Christian faith that they once had. As a pastor and as a Christian, because I, I struggled with this even before God called me into ministry, is I knew people who to this day have a deep hatred for the church that they once loved. And as a pastor and as a minister and as a follower of Jesus, I wrestle with that. Because here in this text that we're going to look at this morning, Paul raises the idea of apostasy. Now, what is apostasy? Apostasy or to apostatize means to do exactly what these three individuals have done. At one point, they said they, they had some kind of faith in Jesus. They had some kind of connection to the church. They had some kind of insight into theology. The first guy had a PhD in theology. And, and, and here's the thing you've got to understand at the very beginning, at the very onset of this sermon, because I do not want you walking out of this building, and I do not want you tuning, on, tuning off at the end of this service today and going, wow, I can be saved and lose, lose my salvation? Absolutely, positively not. The New Testament is clear, page after page, as clear as it can be, that once you come to faith in Jesus and you are adopted by God, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You cannot fall out of his hand because he is holding on to you, and I guarantee you that God's grip holding on to you is sure, and it is fast, and it is strong. It is not you grasping and holding on to God. It's God holding on to you. So what are we to make of these three individuals and what Paul's going to talk about today? Here's the reality. Those three individuals I just talked about, they may have a Ph.D. in theology. They may have a gold record on the wall. They may have been able to talk about the faith. They may have been able to talk about God's Word. They may have been able to stand in front of a crowd of people and proclaim it, but yet they were just as lost as anybody could be. They were never of the faith. That's a big deal. A very big deal. Paul's not saying here, what we're going to look at today, that somehow God has failed, because God does not fail. What he's going to talk about is the failure of humanity and the fact that there are people today who are intentionally misleading the church, intentionally misusing and misteaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, intentionally. And folks, you've got to be careful what you're consuming out there. 
We have access to blog posts. We've got, we've got, I'm a, I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts when I'm mowing the yard. I listen to podcasts when I'm exercising. And I listen, but I'm very, I'm very, very particular into who I let come into those earphones into my ears. And you must be as well. So what we're going to do today is we've got four questions that I think comes right out of this text that we need to wrestle with today. Because what about those who are no longer following Jesus? What, what is it about them? I think... Paul in teaching Timothy here, talking to Timothy at Ephesus, who has the only gospel presence in the whole city of Ephesus. Paul says, Timothy, you've got to be aware of the fact that there are false teachers who are trying to come into your church. They're trying to tear down the gospel. They're trying to undermine what you're teaching. And these people were once part of the body, once said they were part of this movement, yet they have walked away, and now they are intentionally trying to mislead people. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. So here are the four questions. Here's the first one we're going to wrestle with this morning. Who is to blame for this falling away? Who, who is to blame? Let's look at verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says, notice that, the, the Spirit has clearly communicated that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now, what does he mean by latter times? What is, what is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about the period of time in which you and I live. He, he's talking about the time between when Jesus ascended back to the Father. He, he was crucified publicly, buried in a tomb three days, resurrects on that third day, he, he spends time with his disciples. He, he reveals himself to them. He, he spends time with them. Then eventually, he publicly, visibly ascends into the clouds back to the right hand of the Father, which he had already told them he would do. From that time until the time that Jesus returns in victory. So we are still awaiting Jesus' victorious return back to earth to, to, to wrap things up. We're still awaiting that. Paul says that between that ascension and between his second return, his, re, his return, that is the latter days. He says, now, in those latter times, the time in which you and I live, some are going to depart. Some are going to walk away. Well, we shouldn't really be surprised by that, especially in our American culture. Because the people who are choosing to walk away today were the ones who were taught that God did not matter years ago. The, the, the ones who are, who are in power, the ones who are in control, grew up in a system, grew up in a, in a system that taught them that there is no God, and if there is, He doesn't matter. I mean, think about it this way. You know, when I came up through public school, I was taught that, and it contradicted everything I've been taught in the church, that, that the universe as we know it, as massive and large and beautiful as it is, is one big, huge cosmic accident. That over billions and trillions of years, and they keep adding more trillions to those years, that over time, eventually, the cosmos came to be, and the, the sun came to be, and the earth came to be, and, and the water came to be, and the mountains, and the plants, and the animals all came to be. And eventually, after ever millions and millions of years, there's this salamander-like creature that crawls up out of the water, and eventually, he grows arms, and eventually, he grows legs, and eventually, he becomes an intelligent being, and eventually, he becomes like the epitome of all of of that is of which is evolving. In other words, you, not only the earth, not only the cosmos, but you as a human being, you are an accident. You came to be as a result of a mixture of scientific processes that have been explained in textbook after textbook. But what those textbooks cannot give you is your purpose. 
And you see, that was what was left out. Hope. If I'm a cosmic accident, if all that is really real is what I can touch and feel and experience, if, if there is nothing after death, if, if, if I go back into the grave and I just simply rot and that's the end of my existence, then why shouldn't I live for today? Why shouldn't I engage? Why shouldn't I drink as much as I drink, want to drink, smoke as much as I want to smoke, shoot up as much drugs as I want to shoot up? Why shouldn't I participate in all that the world has and engage everything my flesh wants to do? Does that not make sense? Because if there's nothing beyond this world, then you really have no purpose, do you? Well, we shouldn't be surprised. Going all the way back to the 1800s, even before that, this idea that science answers all of our questions. We don't need to rely on God. In 1966, some of you probably maybe remember this was before my time, but there was a Time magazine that came out, and on the cover, it was just red and black, and it said that God is dead. The idea was is that we don't need God anymore. You know, our past families and past patriarchs of our family, they, they needed a God to kind of you know, lean on, kind of a crutch to get them through life. But now that we become heightened in our understanding of how the world came to be, we really don't need God anymore. So, so God, we don't want you in our community. We don't want you in our school. We don't want you anywhere in our home. So, God, you can just walk off. And if I need you, then I'll, I'll, I'll look you up. But more than likely, I'm not going to need you. He says here that in the latter times, some will depart. We're in those latter times. Atheism... And maybe that describes you. Maybe that's where, where you are. Maybe, maybe this is your first time tuning in or being part of a church, and you would describe yourself as an atheist, which means you don't believe that God exists. But let me, let me just express something to you very clearly. You were created by God to worship. You were created by God to seek out something greater than yourself. And when you push God out, and when you decide collectively that God doesn't exist, something is going to fill that void. In that vacuum of, of believing that God doesn't exist, something else is going to fill that void. The world has all kinds of options for you. And they're telling you, hey, you can find hope here. You can find life here. You can find peace here. But deep, deep down, you know that all that you've tried has left you just as empty and void as when you began. Notice what else Paul says here. In these latter times in which we now live, People will depart. You see that? Will depart. Some of your translations may say fall away. The Greek word behind that is, is the idea of apostasy. That there will be people who, will, who were once part of this movement called Christianity, but are no longer. He says, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What is shocking about what Paul is saying here is what the fountainhead is of all teaching. If I go up to the mountains and, and where our cabin is, I can, uh, we have spring water that we use in the cabin. And if I walk far enough, I can, found the, the, I can find the source of that spring. It comes right out of the mountain. The fountainhead of all false teaching is deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's demonic. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that. 
So as if you've read God's Word now and you go back to Genesis, you go back to the fall, what will you find? You will find Satan in the garden with Adam and Eve teaching. And he does so by raising a question. He says to Eve, did God really say that, that you can't eat of that fruit? Eve said, well, yeah, we can't eat it. We can't touch it. We can't, we're not even supposed to look at it. And Satan goes on to say, well, well, let me tell you what's really happening here. God, first of all, he can't be trusted. He's keeping something from you that you deserve. Remember, when we begin to push God out of our life, it leaves a vacuum, ready to be filled with something. Satan walks into the garden and he says to Eve, God cannot be trusted. He's keeping something from you that, quite frankly, you should be able to have. Teachings of demons. Notice this. He says teachings. If you go behind that, it actually means doctrines. That there is an organized structure by, by which the world is, is running towards headlong. And the fountainhead of all of that false teaching, this false belief that, that I am in control of my life that I can live any way I want to, that I'm never going to be held accountable for the choices that I make. The, the world is teaching, if you'll just cast God off, you'll be able to finally have some fun. Who is to blame? Well, ultimately, the fountainhead is Satan himself. It does not matter if there's a PhD in front of their name. It doesn't matter if they have a big old humongous church. It doesn't matter if they've written multiple books. If they are teaching what is against God's Word and against the Gospel, they are false teachers, and the fountainhead of their false teaching goes right back to the place of darkness. We've got to be discerning. We've got to watch out. We've got to understand that that's where the source of this stuff is coming from. And they are devoted. Notice that. It says they are devoted to these teachings. Have you ever noticed? I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I'm sure, sure you have. Have you noticed how quick our culture is lunging away from what is moral and right? Have you noticed how quickly things are moving? I can't even keep up with it. And the only thing I can come, the only conclusion I can come away with is that this thing is organized. This thing, people are organized in part of teaching some set of doctrines that are completely opposed to God's Word. And here we are on this day now questioning the very things that we knew at some point in our life were true. If you remember the argument years ago about same-sex marriage. The argument against that, that, that all of you, many of you that were engaged in, in that pushback against that big cultural change, one of the arguments you were making is this is a slippery slope. This is going to lead us to things that you can't even begin to imagine. And everyone said you were crazy, didn't they? They said you were nuts. They said that, that there's no way this is going to lead to anything else. If we could just get this established and get the Supreme Court to back that up, then everything's going to go away, has it? No. If anything, it's moved faster and faster and faster and faster. They are devoted. They are organized. And the fountainhead of their teachings is none other than Satan himself. Here's the next question. How is it that people turn away from God? How is it that people turn? How is it that people that we once maybe set beside are now gone and even angry? Well, look at the next part. Verse 2. Through this insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You see, I don't think these three individuals, as a matter of fact, the blogs that I can read, they didn't wake up one day and just decide, I'm no longer a believer. I'm no longer part of this. I no longer believe in God. No, it was a slow, gradual process over time. 
And I guarantee you, I'm confident of this. If those guys could be honest, if they could be, if they could be honest about how they got to where they are today, they could point back to teachings, influences, people, blogs, podcasts, things that they were reading, and that doubt that they had began to turn into more than doubt. It became, it became actual atheism. It became something far more than just doubt. It became outright denial. It became, over time, where their conscience became seared because the teachers they were listening to's consciences was seared. What does it mean to have a seared conscience? Well, first of all, what is a conscience? A conscience is something that we're, we're all born with. We all have a conscience. Now, that conscience was marred in the fall. In other words, when we're born into this world, we're born under sin, born under, we're born into an evil system, and then we choose to do evil. But we were born with this moral compass that helps us to understand that there are things that are wrong and there are things that are right. If you can talk to kids, maybe fifth, sixth graders, if they've not been too heavily influenced by culture yet, if you can catch them in that state, if you ask them certain things are right and certain things are wrong, even people who are outside the church who don't know anything about the Bible, they will be able to tell you, yeah, that's, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Where did that come from? Well, it's part of God's image in us. But that conscience, right from wrong. Paul says to Timothy that these false teachers and the ones who are following them, their consciences are being seared. What does that mean? They are losing the ability to discern between what is right and what is wrong. They are losing the ability to know what is moral north. In other words, how do I live my life in such a way that, that I can just live where anything can be right and anything can be wrong all at the same time? I've actually had conversations with people who will argue with you about what is actually right when it's clear as it can be, and they'll come up with every kind of argument to say, no, 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 that's just true for you. Well, no, it's not. They lose their moral compass. These teachers, these false teachers that Paul's talking about, have already lost them. And they're trying to influence others to lose theirs as well. They're asking people to violate their conscience. How does that happen? Well, over time, they begin to teach and influence and overwhelm them with all kinds of information that directly contradicts what God says is right and wrong. And as they listen to it, as they engage in it, as they continue to consume it, Little by little, day by day, moment by moment, the doubt begins to grow. Their goal is to flood you with misinformation. And if you don't know the difference between what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, and they can be very convincing. I mean, they've got a lot of money, they've got a lot of power, they've got a lot of influence. So certainly they couldn't be wrong, right? Over time, I've given you all this information, eventually your conscience becomes confused. You, you, you know that you've been taught, or you know that you understand that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, but, but now what this person seems to be saying seems to make a lot of sense, and, and it begins to confuse you, and you, you turn inwardly. And you get more and more confused, and eventually, in that confusion, the next thing you know is, well, you become confused, and then you come, become unengaged. You just give up. You let go of what you knew to be true. Because society, the people I'm trying to hang out with, I want to be part of that group. I want to be part of what they're doing. I, wanted, I don't want to be seen as an outsider. I want to be part. The same thing we all went through in middle school. Some of you are still going through. Because you're in middle school. 
that pressure to want to fit in, that pressure to want to be part of the crowd. Well, guess what? We didn't lose that in middle school. It's still part of our psyche. And we want to feel like we're part. We don't want to feel like we're on the outside. So with the misinformation comes the confusion. And then with the confusion, we become unengaged in truth at all. And then eventually we become seared. That word seared has behind it this Greek word where we get the idea of being cauterized. I burnt my hand, this left hand, really badly when I worked in industry. And I had some really bad burns on my thumb and on my finger. And to this day, I can't feel anything right there. It took a, it took a while for it to heal. But I still have no feeling there. That's what Paul means by being a seared conscience. He, he's, he's saying that the conscience has been burned to such a degree that they don't even feel anything. They're numb. Things, things that are wrong, things that are right, doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is what I get out of life and what I do for myself. The rest of you can take a flying leap. I'm numb to the rest of you. I'm numb to right and wrong. I'm numb to what I know I ought to do. I don't care anymore. Folks, that's where a lot of people in our society are. That's why we're seeing such heinous things. People have become numb because they don't believe they have any purpose in life. They don't believe that there's a God out there who's going to hold them accountable. They also don't believe there's a God out there who loves them unconditionally. They, they don't believe that, that there's a God exists that, that, that who loves them and who is reaching out for them, and yet they're just filled for hatred. Or it's very worse, numb, a seared conscience. So how do people turn? Well, they listen to people who've already turned. They listen to people who are numb. And the more you listen to them, the more numb you become. And listen, folks, this just isn't coming to podcast. It can, it can, can become through the music you're listening to. It can come through the stuff you're watching on streaming services. It can come through all kinds of avenues where it says what, what used to be wrong in your mind is now morally acceptable, and you begin to move in that direction. And the next thing you know, you don't even know what is right and what is wrong. You're calling what is wrong right, what is right wrong. Paul says that that is consciences that have been seared. So what do they teach? This is the third question. What do they teach? If, they, if the fountainhead is Satan in, the, in, the, in darkness, and there are people who are devoting themselves to that which is in complete opposition to God and spreading it, and people are listening, and their consciences are being seared, then, then what is the content of their teaching? Well, notice here, Paul says, for the content of these particular teachers that Timothy was having to deal with is verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. You know, not a lot has really changed. And what I mean by that is, as I said earlier, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, and what we find in the creation order, is that God has created us with a desire to seek God. Now, over time, as we push God out of our life and we listen to what our world tells us and we listen to what the world's teaching us, then eventually something fills that void. We're going to seek after something to adhere our lives to that we hope will bring hope. So what is the teachings that are going on? Well, here we find out that they were teaching about rituals. Now, I find it interesting that in Ephesus, of all places, in the temple of Diana and all the worship that was going on there was sexually immoral. So there was a sexual revolution that was happening in Ephesus. And so the teaching that these false teachings are doing or false teachers are doing, they're saying, oh, no, 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 don't get married because if you get married, then how are you going to participate in some of the other things that are going on in Ephesus? 
Because even with the Roman concept of marriage, there was still some kind of adherence to one person, not as strong as what Christianity brought. But they're saying, no, 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 don't get married. And there's certain things you should eat and certain things you shouldn't eat. So here's what happened. These false teachers are teaching rituals. That flows from the fountainhead of Satan. Why is that? It's because we desire to have some ritual to go through. If we're designed to worship, then why not fill that space with a bunch of fake, empty, meaningless rituals, and then we can just worship whatever we want to. You know, you know what American culture is worshiping? You know who our God is now? Well, it's us. You may have never heard this term before. It's called hedonism. Hedonism is the idea that the chief end of mankind, the chief goal, the chief opportunity in hedonism is, is not only worship of self, but the seeking out of pleasure. Does that not define where we are today? That the end goal of all things is to make sure that we're able to have pleasure, however you want to define that. And we should cast off any restrictions, any principles, any inhibitions that come from our past that's connected to a God who's going to hold us accountable. Let's cast all that aside and let's full-blown run towards whatever makes us feel good. You see the trajectory. I'm going to give you a new term today. Maybe you've heard about it, maybe you haven't. It's the idea of polyamory. Have you heard of polyamory? Well, just as we said back with the pushback against same-sex marriage, we said that there was going to be this slippery slope that's going to bring everything, all kinds of things into our culture. And how are we going to say no to those things if we've said yes to this? You see, the further you move away from God's order, the more open you are to whatever's coming down the pipe. So here's what polyamory is. You can have a couple that can be married, not married, living together, whatever, whatever you want to say. Let's say they're married. And, and that couple decides, you know what? Because I am bisexual and you're bisexual, we need to have other partners in our relationship. So they're bringing other partners into their relationship for intimacy, for sexual immorality, and they're saying that that's okay and that you should accept that. That whoever wants to be part of this little arrangement of living in this home, we can have a couple of guys and three women or four women and one guy. It's all over the place. And this is the new movement. If you haven't heard about it, you will. Because it's coming to a county near you. You might already know of somebody caught up in that. Here's the issue. Rituals without a relationship. Works without the gospel. Religion without any real life at all. These rules that they were putting in place, it appeased this idea of worship. It, it made them feel like everything, well, hey, we're, we're going through the rituals. That means something, right? Well, no, they don't. If there's no God on the other end of it, if there's no worship and surrender and submission to the God who owns the universe, then no, there's no purpose in it. It doesn't matter. If you're coming to church and you're adhering to some set of doctrines, if you're separated from the Jesus who gave all to give you new life, then it's nothing more than empty rituals. It's dead. Israel struggled with this over and over again. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, we'll get into it in a few weeks, but he says there that they have this appearance of godliness, but they were denying the power. They had their rituals, but no transformation. And the crazy thing about all this teaching was that they were providing is it tried to appeal to their desire to worship while separating themselves from a holy God. And that teaching is still continuing today. That you can have religion without submission. You can have 
faith without facts. You can have worship of self leading to hedonism and pursue all the pleasures that you desire and never have to worry about being accountable to anyone. Finally, how do I remain faithful? Maybe you're feeling the pressure of what the world is teaching. Maybe you're feeling the pressure of these false teachers. How do we remain faithful? I want to express again as clearly as I can that those three individuals I talked about at the very beginning, they had never come from darkness into light. My concern is, is that there are people sitting in Christian churches who have rituals, they have things that they're doing, they, they, they know some of the phrases, they know some of the verses, they know some of the Christian songs, but they've never been born again. That is a deep, deep concern of mine. Look at what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. What's going to be interesting is what John says, and this is years later, John writes this particular letter. And I want you to notice something. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, these are the later times. We're in the later times. And as, as we see the later times, one thing we can, we can understand that there's going to be false teachers and they're going to mislead people. That's part of the latter times. Notice what John says. Children, it is the last hour. See the difference? John writes years later. And from John's perspective, it's worse at his time than it was at Paul's time. John doesn't say we're in the last days. He says we're in the last hours. And if John wrote that, then what do you think about now? He says it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. In other words, there are those who are speaking directly against Christ, the church, the body. They are completely part of this system of darkness, and their fountainhead of teaching flows directly from Satan himself. He says, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So, so how do we know? Well, when we look around and we see this snowball rolling down this hill, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't want to make a prediction. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to observe this in the coming months, coming years. Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find some teachers that used to teach in the church, probably pretty well known. And now all of a sudden, they are departing from the faith. There are some right now that are right on that fence. I'm talking people you've probably read their books. It's just a matter of time. They're already starting to begin to pull back. They're already starting to question core doctors. And what I see in them and what I see in these teachers is that they're under the influence of someone who has a seared conscience. And they're beginning to compromise. And it's just a matter of time before they deny outrightly. John says this, you'll know it's the last hour when you see that happening. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain. They are not of us. You hear what John's saying? John's saying that he's struggling with the same reality. There are some people who started with us, but they didn't continue with us. They left. And what John says is, is the fact that they left proves the reality that they were never really part of the kingdom of God at all. 
that, that they were able to walk away and continue to walk away, which says not that God failed, but they didn't get the goods. All I have to do is mention to you one name, and you'll understand, and that's Judas. Judas, who saw everything that Jesus did, he was right there with the disciples. If we could go back in time and see the disciples maybe in about year two, you would see Judas, who didn't really look any different than the rest of the disciples outwardly. He probably was acting a lot like the others. He was listening to what Jesus is teaching. We don't have a lot of indication of what he did. We just know that eventually he was stealing money out of the, out of the offerings that they were receiving. But then we get a little further into the story of Jesus, and we find out that Judas has got a real problem. And that eventually Judas is open to the idea of betraying Jesus. The guy who saw the miracles, the guy who watched Lazarus walk out of a tomb alive, blind Bartimaeus being healed, the lame man being healed, all that Judas watched and looked just like the other disciples. But he was not of them because he didn't remain with them. He leaves the upper room. And he goes out and he sails out to the Pharisees and Sadducees and gives Jesus over in the Garden of Gethsemane. How do we remain faithful? Well, the first thing we've got to wrestle with is are you certain that you're not already an apostate? Are you certain that you've put your faith in Jesus? Listen, if you've put your faith in rituals, if you've put your faith in Christian music, if you've put your faith in a denomination, if you put your faith in walking to a set of steps at the front of a church, if you put your faith in the prayer that you prayed, if you put your faith in baptism, if you put your faith in what the preacher told you to put faith in, if you put your faith in any of that and it didn't put, end up with you putting your faith in Jesus, then it could be you're lost. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I believe you do. I know the Lord does. But if you came under some false teaching, if you come under the, some, some idea that the gospel is somehow walking an aisle, praying a prayer, getting baptized, joining in a denomination, serving in children's ministry, if, if you fill in that blank with anything other than faith and repentance and belief in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on your behalf, then it could be you have misappropriated your faith, which means you were never part of the body of Christ. Are you playing games? Is rituals the focus of your life? Here's how you can know. If you can turn your Christianity on on Sunday morning and turn it off on Sunday evening, if you can live like the rest of the world on Monday, the only thing that's known about your Christianity is when you're here. If you have no problem living like the rest of the world with no conviction, no conviction whatsoever, with a conscience that is becoming seared to what is right and what is wrong, and you're acquiescing to the culture, whatever they say becomes your truth. Maybe, just maybe, you've never really followed Jesus. But this is what Paul tells to Timothy. He says, as a pastor of that church in Ephesus, he says in verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. 
Now notice that. The good doctrine versus the bad doctrine. If you go back into verse 1, you'll see that they're teaching. The teachings of demons, guess what that means? It means the doctrines of demons. Paul says, Timothy, you've been taught the word. You know what is true. You have a moral north. Your conscience is not seared. But Timothy, what you must do, what you absolutely have to do, what you've been called to do, what you've had hands laid on you and even prophesied that you would do, is you must teach the word to your people. They must know the difference between what is true and what is false. They must know the difference between what it means to follow Jesus and follow the world. Timothy, you must teach the true words of the faith and in good doctrine. And here's something very important you can't miss. The good doctrine that you have followed. Now, that's not just something Timothy's supposed to do. Timothy is supposed to multiply disciples who do exactly the same thing. But notice what he says here. He says that, that good doctrine must turn into something you're actually following. Folks, discipleship is not the transfer of knowledge. If it was, then all Jesus had to do in those three and a half years, matter of fact, he didn't even have to take three and a half years. In the first year, he got his disciples together. He could have took them up on a mountain, spent maybe a month just teaching them all that they needed to know about the kingdom, and then he could have just went on to the cross and ascended on heaven. But he didn't. He chose to be with those men for three and a half years. And here's what he would do. He would teach them something, and then he would say, now, you go do it. And then they would fail, and they would come back, and they would say, hey, Jesus, we messed this up. And Jesus, okay, well, let me, let me take you a little deeper. Let me teach you some more. Discipleship, growth in Christ, is not just the acquisition of knowledge. You can have all the knowledge in the world and still be far, far from Christ. We have a PhD who's now apostatized. It's knowledge followed up by accountability, followed up by living that out. Is that not where the stress is in your walk? I know what's true, the tension of living that out. He says, the good doctrine that you have followed, Timothy. Timothy, you've been a good example to the congregation. You're teaching it, but you're also living it. You're following it. When you read God's Word, it should, well, cause you some pain from time to time. You should see in this Word that's described as a mirror, that it reflects back to us just how far we're missing the mark. And then we strive to live up to what Christ has called us to live. And here's the amazing thing. We've been given everything we need to live out what Christ has called us to live out. You have the ability to walk away from lust. Not in your strength, but in the strength the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have the ability to walk away from greed. You have the ability to have your conscience clear on what is right and wrong, a moral north. Paul says, being trained in the words of faith, train others. To follow, verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. That's what those false teachers were doing. They were teaching all kinds of silly foolishness. I wonder, I wonder if those false teachers, I don't know, here's a crazy thing. I wonder if those false teachers were teaching conspiracy theories. Because we don't have any of those today, right? They're everywhere. Silly myths. I'm troubled sometimes by what I hear people say they believe about the world. People who who have been exposed to God's Word and, and say that they've been transformed, but, but all of a sudden somebody, some person on a stage somewhere says this is true, and they're just like applauding it like it's no big deal without having any kind of, well, thought that maybe this could be false. What does God's Word have to say about that? Notice what else he says. He says, rather, 
Train yourself for godliness. Not only are we to be steeped in good doctrine and living out that doctrine by following it and living it. Verse 7, he says, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Train yourself for godliness. It has behind this text the idea of a gym. Going in and working out. I know some of you are really big into working out and training and you're lifting weights and I mean, you're getting all cut up and healthy and all that good stuff and that's wonderful and listen to what Paul says. Verse 8, he says, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of a value of it in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. You know what Paul's saying? Let me kind of get to the point here. He says, yeah, you can exercise. That's good for your body. Keep you healthy. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But here's the reality. You're going to die. Isn't that encouraging? So you can be the most ripped, biggest guy in the room, or you can be the most, you can do, you can do push-ups on one, with one hand. You can do handstands and walk on your hands. You can do all that stuff. You can bench press even up into your 80s. You can be fit and all that and look great and the world be in all of you, but then you will die. So bodily exercise can only take you so far. Here's what he says. He says, but exercise, training yourself in godliness, knowing what is right and what is wrong, and then living your life accordingly. He says that has value for this life because it keeps you out of a whole lot of trouble. And it has value for the next life when you stand before God and give an account for your life. He says, this is how we're to remain faithful. Stay under the teaching of God's word. Be careful who you let into your life telling you what is right and wrong. I don't care how many PhDs they've got. Be discerning. I don't care how many gold records they've got on the wall. Be discerning. Listen to the music you're listening to. What is it, what is it teaching you? Because it is teaching you. Is it in complete opposition to what you say is real in your life? He says, train yourself for godliness. And then finally, he says this. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Here's the thing. All those world systems, all those false teachers, they're giving you a false hope. They're saying if you'll listen to what they're saying and believe what they're telling you to believe and live your life accordingly, that you're going to find hope and peace in that. But let me tell you something. If that teaching is separated from a God who loves you, separated from a Savior who died for you and resurrected, if that teaching is separated from the gospel of Jesus Christ and His inerrant Word, it will not lead to hope. It will lead to hopelessness. Void. Depression. Anger. A seared conscience where you can't even discern right from wrong anymore. And the things that you thought were once solid in your life all of a sudden become like sand on the seashore. Be sure where you stand. You can know. Do you know? I find it interesting that those false teachers are devoted to their teaching. Are you devoted to God's Word, knowing what it says, living it out? I think it's there where we find that we're able to stand in a culture that's went off the rails. Father in heaven, as we prepare ourselves for the table, for the bread and the cup, in this room and across the country and across the world, there are really two categories of people 
Only two. One category is, is that for some, they may attend religious services every week. They're going through rituals. But on the inside, they are dead. No life, no peace, no joy. So their response to that deadness on the inside is, is to continue trying to find more rituals, more things that bring meaning to life, that somehow give them a purpose and somehow bring joy, but yet they always end up right where they started and even more broken than before. So they seek out teachers. They seek out people who seem to have it all together. And they listen and they absorb and they, they try to do what they say. They try to live by the rituals that they teach, but yet they find no hope and no peace. And Father, they keep running in circle after circle after circle. Father, you have a word for that. It's lost. I believe there are some here in this building, some online, that it, that's exactly what their life is like. Father, may they set their hope on a living God through repentance and belief and the only Savior that can give life. Father, there's another group of people, people who have crossed from darkness into life, but in their day-to-day -day walk, they're not living any different than the world. And they're consuming just as much false teaching as anyone else, and they've lost what it means to be a moral person, a person that knows what is right and wrong. And Father, you're bringing conviction you're bringing correction, but they keep ignoring it. Father, their next step is repentance. Their next step is to seek you for forgiveness and to be set free. Father, have your will in your way. And as we prepare our hearts for the cup and the bread this morning, I pray, Father, that we would lay everything at your feet, find forgiveness and grace and mercy there so we can come to your table and observe it the way the Word commands us to with a heart that is clean. Father, have your will and your way during this moment of commitment. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.